are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join me here on this Thursday afternoon. I'm speaking to my home on the west coast of California, and I appreciate the fact that we often get live viewers and then also viewers by virtue of recording from many different places in the world. And I'm pleased that you could join me. What we do on these Thursday afternoons is we have a live question and answer time. I wouldn't blame you for asking yourself the question, well, who is this fellow, David Guzik, and why does he think that he can answer people's questions on the Bible? Well, let me just say this. I'm a pastor, and I've been a pastor for many years. Uh, I have more than 30 years of pastoral ministry experience, and I do have something unique. I have a written commentary on the entire Bible. (laughs) That certainly doesn't mean that I can answer every Bible question or I know everything about the Bible. Of course, no one does that. But I do know a few things, and I have spent a long time studying and preparing my Bible commentary. Maybe there's some knowledge I can pass on to you, answer some questions, give some comments, or at least tell you whether or not an answer to your question is possible. It's common for people to have questions about things that the Bible doesn't specifically speak to. And when that's the case, I hope I can tell you the Bible doesn't specifically speak to this, but maybe these are some things we can consider. Our normal pattern on a uh, Thursday afternoon is for me to begin with a lead question, and I'll get to that in a moment. But I do want to do two very quick things first. First of all, I do want to welcome our TWR360 audience. These are people who come to us through the website where this question and answer is featured on their page right now uh, as sort of a live portal into this YouTube stream. I do want to welcome those TWR360 viewers. We're very pleased that you can join us. And God bless you, and God bless the ministry of Trans World Radio 360, that great work that for decades has been reaching difficult-to-reach places in the world through their work of shortwave radio, but of course they also have a marvelous work online now from their website, TWR360. So welcome to you all, and I do want to say that if you are interested in my written Bible commentary, I I do want to point out that it's possible that many of the questions that you have about the Bible can be answered just by taking a look at my written Bible commentary. And so that's always open there to you to answer such questions. Okay, so let me get into our lead question today. Our lead question actually comes from Donald, and this was a question that he had last week from our live chat. In other words, this is a question that we didn't quite get to last week in our live chat, and whenever I can, it's not always possible, but I like to pick up a question that maybe we didn't get to. So if you have a question today that we're not able to get to because of time, or maybe we're talking about other things, uh, don't despair. I may be able to answer your question next week. All right, here's the question from Donald from last week's live chat. Donald asked, Can a Christian live in this life without sin? I ask this because Jesus lived as a man without sin. All right, well, Donald, you ask a very good question. 
Is it possible for a Christian to live without sinning? Is a sinless Christian life possible? And my immediate answer to that question is no. And we'll get to that. But actually, it's more complicated than that. It's no, but with, I would say, a real explanation of what we mean with that answer. So first of all, let me go over some scriptures with you. I want to begin by taking a look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10. Let's take a look at those verses together. We read there, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, this is what I want you to see first and foremost, is that when you go through the letter of 1 John, this is written to people who at least have made a credible profession of faith. We have every reason to regard the original audience of John's first letter as being believers. So when he says, if we say that we have no sin in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he's speaking to believers. And it's important for us to say that believers still have sin. To think of ourselves as sinless in this life, in this body, is to deceive ourselves. And to say this of ourselves is, frankly, to lie. As John says, the truth is not in us. Now, there are a few people today who think that they are sinlessly perfect. There is a doctrine of perfectionism in some Wesleyan traditions, though it's more nuanced and and complicated than what I'm just stating right now. But there are a few people who think that some type of sinless perfection is possible in this life, yet there aren't many people today who actually think of themselves as sinners. A lot of people say, well, I make mistakes, I'm not perfect, I'm only human, but usually they say such things to excuse or defend their behavior. This is quite different from knowing and admitting, I am a sinner. So if we say, as John says, we should not say that we have no sin, it puts us in a dangerous place. Friends, God's grace and mercy is extended to sinners, not not just to mistake makers, or I'm only human kind of people, or nobody's perfect kind of people. No, God's grace is extended to sinners. We need to realize that real victory and forgiveness comes from the place of saying, I'm a sinner, maybe even saying I'm a great sinner, but I have a great Savior who cleanses me from all sin. So we need to realize that we're not in that place of saying that we have no sin. As he goes on to say in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Friends, if we deny the presence of sin in our life, we're self-deceived. And we're denying God's word. Sin is present in the believer in this life, but so is the remedy for sin present. So sin never needs to be a hindrance to our relationship with God. Now, I want to also turn to another passage to speak about this. The other passage I want to turn to is Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 20. 
Let me read that to you. Romans chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. Paul writes this. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, I need to make you aware that there is considerable debate among Christians, Christians who really love the Lord and believe the Bible, whether or not Paul wrote these words of Romans chapter 7 of himself before he was a Christian or while he was a Christian. I put myself in the camp of believing that it was written by Paul of his Christian experience, but it's definitely a Christian experience of looking to self for the answers in the struggle against sin, not in looking to the Lord. You see, when Paul says in verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me. Anyone who's ever tried to do good is aware of that struggle. And you never know how difficult it is to do good until you really want to do good. And the desire to do good is something that is really found in the person who is born again. But I think it's fascinating. In this Romans 7's passage, it really reveals that the old man, the sin principle in Paul, it's not the real Paul. The old man is not the real Paul. The old man is dead. The flesh is not the real Paul. The flesh is destined to pass away and be resurrected. The new man is the real Paul. And so it's important for us to see that Paul was a new man in Jesus Christ, yet even within the new man there was, as he says, Let's look again in verse 23. He says, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. Sin was able to war within Paul and to win because there was no power in himself other than himself to stop sinning. Now, as we go on to the next two verses, we see that Paul speaks in these terms. He says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through the Lord Jesus Christ, or through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, and with the flesh, the law of sin. Paul understood that he was a wretched man, but he begins to find answers when he looks outside of himself for someone to deliver him. And that answer is found, of course, in Jesus Christ. That's why he says in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Now, when you put all this together, what we learn from 1 John chapter 1 about the fact that sin remains in us, but then also some answers in Romans chapter 7, and I could have gone on into Romans chapter 8, but I'm just going to leave it with what we see in Romans chapter 7, that there are in Jesus Christ for the one who feels bound by sin. The glorious truth remains for us, there is victory in Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come and die just to give us more rules or better rules 
But Jesus Christ came to live out his triumph over sin through those who believe. And the message of the gospel is, is that there is some sense of triumph over sin, over hate, over death, over all evil as we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ and let him live out his triumph through us. You see, you thought that the problem was, was that you didn't know what to do to save yourself. So the law came along as a teacher and it taught you what to do, but you still couldn't do it. You see, you need more than a teacher. You need a savior. Or maybe you thought that the problem wasn't that you were motivated enough. But the law came in like a coach to encourage you on to do what you needed to do. But the problem was you still didn't do it. You don't need just a coach or a motivational speaker. You need a savior. Or maybe you thought the problem was that you didn't know yourself well enough. But you know, the law came in like a doctor and perfectly diagnosed your sin problem but the law couldn't heal you. You don't need only a doctor, spiritually speaking. You need a savior. You see, the law falls short in each one of these places as a teacher, as a coach, as a doctor, but Jesus Christ perfectly fulfills all these things. This means that we can live a life of increasing freedom from the grip and tyranny of sin. Let me sort of wrap up with a conclusion to Donald's questions with a few points. Can a Christian live in this life without sin? Well, there is real victory over sin in Jesus Christ. That's true. And God has not set his people in a system where they must sin. However, we do recognize that our salvation is not yet complete. It will be complete when we are glorified, when we have our bodies of resurrection. Then we will no longer sin, but until then, the weakness of our flesh means that we will sin and fall short of God's glory in some way. As John wrote in 1 John, there's a remedy for that. We confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our sin doesn't need to be a hindrance to our fellowship with God if we will put it away as God calls our attention to it. Now, hopefully, sin in our life will happen less and less as time goes on. That's what we call sanctification. You can call it growth in God's grace. But our sanctification will not be complete until we are glorified having the bodies of our resurrection. We dare not dream that we are sinless when we are not. Now, let me get back to one last aspect of Donald's questions, and then I'll go into the questions from the side chat. Donald said that he asked this question because Jesus lived as a man without sin. Now, Donald, that's true, but remember this. Jesus did not have an inherited sin nature. We do. Matter of fact, every human being who has ever walked this earth has had an inherited sin nature, except for two people, Adam 
and Eve, of course. And then the other person who did not have an inherited sin nature was Jesus himself. Every else one of us, we deal with sin on a little bit, at least a little bit, it's great sometimes, of a different basis, having an inherited sin nature. But Jesus Christ came to cleanse us, to save us, and one day to put us in a position where we will not sin, where we will be sinless. And that's when we are glorified, when we have the bodies of our resurrection. So, Donald, thank you for your question. Let me give attention now to the questions that have come up in our side chat, and I'll go to them. Victor asks a question saying, Do you think it was possible for Judas Iscariot to have wept in repentance as Peter wept after denying Jesus and be forgiven and converted? Okay, was it possible for uh, Judas to have repented and be forgiven and converted. Okay, Victor, I'm going to give you a classic yes and no answer to that question. If we want to deal with it purely in the hypothetical, I would say yes, because there is no sin beyond the ability of Jesus to forgive. There's no sin that's greater than God's ability to forgive. If we will bring that sin under the lordship of Jesus Christ and under the power of his forgiveness based on what Jesus did for us at the cross. In theory, again, we're speaking purely hypothetically, in theory, there was nothing hindering that happening in the life of Judas. Now, that's speaking only in theory. Let me speak a little bit now in practice. In practice, There was a great problem with that because Judas was, in fact, someone who was destined for destruction. And he was destined for destruction. Jesus called him the son of perdition because Judas, in his heart, would never have repented. He was, in this sense, so totally yielded to sin and the sinful impulse that he would not seek the forgiveness that God offers. So, I could say hypothetically, yes, Judas could have been forgiven and repentant and restored, but only hypothetically. In the truth of who Judas was and how he lived, it would never have happened. He had a destiny, and that title just sort of sends chills up my spine when Jesus called Judas the son of perdition, the man totally characterized by destruction and the judgment of destruction. So thank you for that question there, Victor. Let me go on to a question from West who says, if the first church was in the apostolic age and their beliefs, where did the other churches come from? Well, West, I'm not sure I understand your question, but let me answer it the best I can understand. Um, Every true church has descended in some way from the church of the apostles, the first century church, the church of the book of Acts that we find in Acts chapter 2. Now, I can say this because there was a time when those were the only believers and disciples of Jesus Christ. And every subsequent believer or disciple of Jesus Christ 
came forth from that group of 120 who were gathered together in the upper room at that time. All believers uh, come forth from that group. So that first century apostolic church began to branch out very quickly, but it is all contained back to what we find of that original group of believers that were gathered together there in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Now, well, Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2, to be more exact. Now, there were early Christian groups in Ethiopia. Again, those were descendant from that group of 120 believers that were originally gathered together in Acts chapter 1 and 2. There were early Christian groups that came forth in other countries, again, descended from those believers. So, as the church went on, there were Christian groups that came forth that weren't directly established back to the church as it was expressed in Acts chapter 20, but as it goes back to Acts chapter 1 and 2, all believers were descended from that. I hope I can explain that for you. Now, West, I do have to give one other aspect of an answer to your question. There are people who define the church as something that was present before the new covenant was established. They established the church or they define the church as something that was contained uh, back in Old Testament times, sometimes giving the equation that Israel was the church in the Old Testament. And then they would give the converse equation that the church is Israel in the New Testament. I want you to know that my understanding of the Bible would say that that's not a true understanding of what the Bible says. I believe that there is a distinction between Israel, the community gathered under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, and continuing on to the early part of the New Testament, and the New Covenant community that's established in this the church born on the uh, day of the book of Acts, uh, excuse me, the day of Pentecost described in the book of Acts uh, in Acts chapters 1 and 2. So I hope that's helpful there for you, uh, West. Let me ask a question from Sebastian. Sebastian says, do you believe in an old earth or a young earth theology? All right, well, Sebastian, let me say first of all, that while I do think that this is an important issue, and it's basically the issue that says, is the earth roughly 10,000, 20,000 years old, you know, some small number like that, that we would describe as a young earth? Is the earth something roughly that age, or is it uh, billions or millions of years old? That's really the division, young earth or old earth young cosmos or old cosmos? How, how do we determine this? Let me say, first of all, Sebastian, I think that is a valid question, and I think it's an important question, but I don't think it's a question that we should call other people heretics about if we disagree with them. There are some important issues of Christian theology that don't rise to the level of heresy. I'll give you my personal opinion on another area that's not connected to this. I believe the issue of baptism is important. 
whether or not we baptize people on the basis of a credible profession of faith, that's called believer's baptism or some credo-baptism, or whether we baptize babies of believers without, obviously, a credible profession of faith. That's called pedo-baptism, infant baptism, whatever. Now, I think that's an important issue. It's an issue I personally like to talk about. But I don't believe that is, is an issue that would rise to the, heresy, to, to the level of heresy if someone gets it wrong. I think that people who approve of and practice the um, institution of infant baptism or pedo-baptism, I think they're wrong. And I think they're wrong on an important issue, but I would never say that they are heretics. For me, it's something like that in the issue of young earth and old earth. Okay, now for me, I lean definitely towards the young earth understanding. My general belief is that God created a earth in the recent past. Look, I can't give you a number. I can't say 10,000 or 20,000, but I would say it is not the millions and millions of years ago. I believe that God created the earth in the relative recent past, but he made it with apparent age built in. Now, I understand those who believe in an old earth find that very offensive. And I understand, I've read their arguments. They believe that that is God being deliberately deceptive. I just have to say, I don't share that opinion, and I won't get into all the reasons why right now. But I believe that just as God created Adam with an apparent age, we don't know how old Adam was in appearance. Apparently, he was something like, I don't know, 25, 30 years old. But but he would only be a few days old. But God created him with apparent age. Just as there were trees in the Garden of Eden that had rings in them, that had apparent age, I don't see why it would be wrong or fundamentally deceptive for God to do that for all of creation. And again, I I understand if you disagree with me on that and think that is, we could talk about it sometime, but that's just how I lean. So again, um, I answer that question there for you, Sebastian. I lean towards a young earth theology But I have read enough of those who believe in an old earth to where I would not regard them as heretics. Not at all. Okay, let me go on to the next question here from Jennifer, who asks, Can you explain what is meant by standing boldly before the throne of God? Many have fallen on their faces when meeting God. You know, Jennifer, you're asking a tremendous question here. In Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 4, it speaks about the fact that because Jesus has made a new and living way for us to come before God on the basis of his own sacrificial blood, his own life laid down for us, because Jesus did that, we can come to God's throne of grace boldly to find help in our time of need. And really, that's a remarkable statement. Because, Jennifer, just as you state, when we have instances in the scriptures of people going and appearing in a vision or some kind of strange experience, they go to heaven. They go to heaven in some way. We think of this of Isaiah, 
We think of this with Paul. We think of this with John writing in the book of Revelation. For them, it's not like this uh, giddy, happy, super fun experience. They're overwhelmed by the power and the majesty of God. It doesn't feel like they have a bold presence in God's presence. But here's the thing. Their weakness, their lack of ability to stand boldly before God, it wasn't because the work of Jesus wasn't able to give them boldness. It's that simply they were so aware of their own sinfulness. And we, in Jesus Christ, can come before God boldly. Now, let me say this. Jennifer, we're not saying that we can come before God arrogantly. Oh, sometimes I hear Christians pray. Sometimes I hear them in their worship or their public proclamation towards God in the presence of God's people. And they don't sound bold. They sound arrogant. No, we we never want to come before God in a way that reflects any arrogance. But boldness? Yes, indeed. We can appear before God in a bold way. Why? Not because there's anything in ourselves that merits that kind of boldness, but because we have a faithful Savior in Jesus Christ who gives us the same standing that he has before God the Father. We are in Jesus. Therefore, we have his same standing. Imagine this. Jesus can be genuinely bold before his God and Father. So can we. Because our standing is in him. So, we never want to think of this as an arrogance, but yet as truly a confidence, never in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. Um, I do wonder, I wonder what it's going to be like when we are in the Lord's presence in heaven, the fulfillment of our heavenly hope, which I look forward to. I hope you look forward to it as well. Maybe there will be an initial reaction of falling down in reverent honor before God. But I think very soon, empowered and energized by the Spirit of God and the knowledge of who we are in Jesus Christ, we will have something of a boldness. We will be that confident in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Thank you for that question there, Jennifer. Let me go on to the next question from Joyce, who asks, What are my thoughts on the forthcoming UFO revelations from our military? Are there any biblical implications? Joyce, it's possible that there could be biblical implications of this. Now, I don't want to go too far out on this limb because it involves speculation. And we, we don't want to fall guilty of over-speculation when we think about these things. But if we did want to speculate a little bit, one could say that um, demonic spirits could appear and attempt to have influence uh, 
over humanity appearing under the guise of alien visitors. That's possible. Um, I suppose it's possible. Why, why should we exclude that possibility? Now, we don't want to say that this is absolutely the case because, again, we don't know with any absolute confidence. But we can say that at least it's possible. Now, um, that could have a relation to end times events. It's something to think about. It's something maybe to keep some kind of an eye on. But we would say this. Do you remember back in the Old Testament? One example is in the book of Deuteronomy, where God says, uh, okay, if there's a prophet who predicts things and they don't come to pass, then you don't have to listen to that prophet. But God also says, if there is a prophet who does predict things and they do come to pass, and he teaches you to do differently or to go in a different way than the Lord God has commanded you, don't you listen to that prophet either. I wouldn't care if a bona fide visitor from another planet came and told me to do something contrary to God's word, I wouldn't do it. Because let me tell you something. The Lord is God over all creation. There was a Christian musician named Larry Norman. And Larry Norman had a question called, uh, a, a song, and a question, a song called Unidentified Flying Object, UFO. And it was just sort of a clever little song. And there was a line in that song that he gave. He said, and if there's life on other planets, then I'm sure that he, meaning Jesus, that God or Jesus must know. And he's been there once already and has died to save their souls. Listen, if there is true life on other planets, it hasn't escaped God's notice. And there is no message that even an extraterrestrial could give us that would be greater than the message that we have from God in his word. So those are a few of my thoughts there. Uh, I can go on and on about this, but let me go on to another question. Donna has a question who says, would you please explain what people mean when they describe a theology or a belief as progressive Christianity? Donna, I'm going to be very straightforward with you. This is not an easy question to answer. And I'll tell you why it's not easy to answer. Because the term progressive Christianity covers a very broad section of Christianity, and it has many different expressions. It's one of those terms that is getting more and more difficult to nail down. Now, there is definitely an expression of the Christian world today that calls itself progressive Christianity that is not only real and definable, but it's also dangerous. It's basically a modernization, that's how they would consider it, a modern reworking of Christianity to make it relevant to our present age. Hey, we got to take what the Bible says and make it relevant to um, the modern controversies over uh, sexual practices and sexual identity and the transgender thing. So they are commonly departing from established biblical Christianity, historic Christian understanding 
of what the Bible teaches about these things. They may be more political, perhaps with collectivist leanings. Um, I'm trying to avoid the terms socialist or Marxist, not because I think they're irrelevant, but because those terms get debated so much, let's just call it collectivist, (laughs) that it would be basically much better if the government collected far more resources from individuals and, and businesses and the government distributed those things. That collectivist impulse is oftentimes a mark of progressive Christianity. Then there's marks of progressive Christianity that have to do with traditional doctrines such as the atonement of Jesus dealing with getting away from what we might call the legal um, uh, personal atonement idea that Jesus personally paid the penalty of our sin by standing in our place, receiving the wrath of God that we deserved. Um, The idea that there is a substitutionary aspect of Jesus's atonement when it comes to receiving the wrath of God on our behalf. So many of these things mark uh, progressive Christianity. Here's the problem, is that there are Christians who are moving off into progressive areas of great and legitimate concern, but they don't check every box. And so people say, well, they don't check every box. There's no reason to be concerned. No, there is reason to be concerned. So Donna, I would just say this. Um, I would recommend to you the work of someone who's on YouTube named Alicia Childers. I've been looking at Alicia Childers' works for a few years now, uh, even before she established much of a presence upon YouTube. And uh, I'm impressed with her approach and her analysis of progressive Christianity. Uh, She just came out with a book about progressive Christianity called Another Gospel. Um, But um, she does a good job detailing what are some of the marks of what is called progressive Christianity, but when groups like this come and there is no definable head of their movement. Listen, Donna, there is no pope or director of progressive Christianity. It's a movement with a lot of different expressions and no single leader. Therefore, it is sometimes hard to define. But there are common characteristics. There's common characteristics when it comes to theology, such as denying um, many aspects of historic Christian belief. There are um, many different problems having to do with their theology of the atonement. There are many different problems having to do with their theology of the Bible and the inspiration of the scriptures. And so it's worth it for us to examine the churches, the people that we listen to, and just be aware if they're coming from a progressive perspective um, where they would essentially stand in judgment over the Word of God. Let me give to you a popular progressive belief. And again, I almost hesitate to say this because not everybody who calls themselves a progressive Christian would believe this, but um, it's common in progressive circles 
to declare themselves as being what they would call red-letter Christians. Uh, in the Bible that I have right here, um, the words of Jesus are given in red. Uh, that simply means that they're drawing special attention to the words of Jesus. And this is what they say. They would say, what's really important is the teaching of Jesus, not the teaching of Paul or Peter or John or Isaiah or David or other people in the Old or the New Testaments. That is a serious error when it comes to understanding what the inspiration of the scriptures is all about. While we would agree that there's something special about the words of Jesus, this was the word of God coming through the personality of God. At the same time, the words of Jesus were not any more inspired than the words God gave us through the Apostle Paul or Peter or John or James or our Old Testament authors as well. So I'm sorry to give you a somewhat inadequate answer for that, but a detailed answer to your question would involve a lot more time that I have to give to it than this hour or so that we get together on a Thursday afternoon. Again, let me recommend to you the work of Alicia Childers. We'll include her YouTube channel uh, in the uh, video description of this video. Let me go on next to a question from N, who says, does being educated help a person understand the Bible better, or do the educated and uneducated understand it the same because it's the Holy Spirit that teaches us all? Well, N, let me say this. A good education can help a person understand the Bible much better. Now, I say a good education because just because somebody goes to a respected institution doesn't mean that they received a good education. It doesn't mean that they were offered a good education at that institution, as respected as it might be. And it doesn't mean that even if it was offered, that they received that good education. But um, for someone to properly read the Bible they first of all have to be able to properly read. Christians should be all in for literacy because we want people to be able to read the Bible. So um, a good education teaches us how to read. And a good education teaches us how to understand the plain meaning of words. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible has no nuance has no difficult passages, but for the most part, in general, it's written in plain language for plain people, people like you and I. And a good understanding, a good education will help people to understand what the Bible means in its simplicity. Um, it'll help people understand grammar and word structure. And things like, this is the verb. Uh, this is an imperative verb telling me what to do. Uh, this is a different kind of verb, or this is just a statement of who I am instead of telling me what to do. Education can help a great deal with that. So there is a basic education that helps a person. But on top of that, there really is the power and the role of the Holy Spirit 
to help us understand and live what the Holy Spirit tells us in and through the Word. So, I don't believe that it would be common at all for the Holy Spirit to enable somebody who can't read to instantly, miraculously know how to read. But even a person who can't read, if they can hear somebody under, uh, read the Word of God, the Holy Spirit can help them understand what's being spoken from the Word of God. So yes, the Holy Spirit has a vital role but a good education helps too. It doesn't have to be a fancy education. It doesn't have to be a sophisticated education. Listen, some of the greatest, um, deepest Bible understanding comes from simple people who prayerfully read their Bibles and listen to what the Holy Spirit reveals as they read their Bibles. So we don't want to dismiss academics. We don't want to dismiss a deep academic study of the Bible. The Bible can bear that, believe me. But there is something wonderful and powerful about plain and simple people reading the Bible and being instructed by the Holy Spirit about what it means. I hope that helps you there, N, in an answer to your question. Let me go on next to a question by T.J.R. that says, why was God about to kill Moses in Exodus, and why did God decide not to kill him after his wife circumcised his son? You know, I believe that's in Exodus chapter 4 or 5. Maybe it's in chapter 3 at the end part of chapter 3, somewhere in those chapters. And TJR, you could go to my commentary. EnduringWord.com and get a more detailed answer to your question. But I'll give you a quick answer. Okay. These sons of Moses were inheritors of the covenant that God passed on to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Bible says that circumcision was the sign and the seal of that covenant. As covenant descendants of that Abrahamic covenant, they should have been circumcised. Now, Moses was on his way to speak to the people of Israel, and he was going to speak to them on God's behalf as a messenger of that covenant. It was appropriate for Moses to be in obedience of that covenant towards his children, his sons, and he was in disobedience because he had not had his sons circumcised. So before God used Moses to call the children of Israel to obedience, he and his family had to be in that obedience. That's why it was such a serious matter before the Lord that Moses's sons be circumcised. Now, we can also speculate, and may I say that this is just speculation, but perhaps God had already spoken to Moses about this issue, and Moses delayed. Moses put it off. Moses did not get serious about it. And then God said, no, if you won't get serious about this, I'll get serious about it with you. 
And that's what God did. He expressed a very serious, to say the least, attitude towards Moses regarding this. So do you understand what I'm saying? It was a way of God dealing with Moses about this before he would use Moses to deal with the children of Israel about this. Hey, as Peter would later describe in his letter, judgment begins at the house of God. Moses had to have things right in his own household if he was going to call Israel to get things right among the community of Israel. Okay, let me go on to another question from Horatio. Horatio says, how many years were the people of Israel in Egypt? 430 years? Or does that time count from the time of Abraham? Horatio, that covers the amount of time that they were, in fact, in Israel, um, excuse me, in Egypt, not counting from the time of Abraham. Uh, that was actually a much longer time that they were there uh, uh, since the time of Abraham. Uh, now, there's a few times when the scriptures give that number as a different number. There's another place, and I can't quote you the chapter and verse on this, but where it says it was 400 years. That's just simply giving a round number in that occasion. Uh, and then some people say that uh, it may be dating from the time when Joseph came into Egypt and not the entire time or the time since Joseph died. So there's a few different ways that that number is reckoned but it is basically 400 or 430 years counting from the time when Israel went into Egypt, Jacob or Israel and his family. It's not counting from the time of Abraham. Okay, uh, let me go on to another question from Luciana. Luciana says, if you present the gospel to a person who claims to be a Catholic and they say that they don't need any other religion, say that they're fine where they are, how would you proceed? Okay, Luciana, this is the important thing. They need to be told the importance of trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Not in what they do, but in what Jesus has done in his sinless life, his perfect death, and his powerful resurrection. They need to have their confidence in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, having no confidence in themselves. That's the important point. They need to know that salvation is not a matter of belonging to the right group. Now, we believe that when a person is saved, they do belong to the right group, that is the church of Jesus as it's been expressed throughout all ages. We get that. However, we don't gain salvation by saying, oh, what's the right group out there? I want to join them. No, it's a personal matter of having an individual's trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus did to uh, rescue us from sin and death, especially what he did at the cross. Luciana, I would want to make sure that that person is not trusting in being a Catholic for their salvation, but they're trusting in Jesus. They're not trusting in a church for their salvation. They're trusting in Jesus. And by the way, I would say the same thing for any Protestant. 
Your Roman Catholic membership card is not going to get you into heaven. But let me tell you, your Protestant church membership card is not going to get you into heaven either. You need to repent of your sins, put your trust in Jesus Christ, and have your peace and your rest in him and not in anything you are or anything you've done, but rather having your trust in Jesus Christ. Luciana, that would be the point that I would look to emphasize with that person. And after that, look, I guess you can pray. You can look for continued opportunity. But that, I believe, is the critical point, trusting in Jesus and not in church membership or in anything that we can or have done. Okay, uh, let me go on now to a question. I guess this will be our last question of the day uh, from Anahui. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Thank you for viewing here. It says, is Psalm 35 wrong to pray? I was told when I did, I sinned. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, uh, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable by, for doctrine, reproof, etc. Well, Anahui, let me turn to Psalm 35 and let's just take a look at it, where it's really one of these psalms that what we would call it is in the fancy name for it is an imprecatory psalm. It's a psalm where basically uh, David, the author of the psalm, we know that because it's in the very first line of the psalm, that David is the author. It's a psalm where David asked God to defeat and destroy his enemies, such as verse 4 of Psalm 35, which says this, Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my light. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Verse 5, let them be like chaff before the wind and let the angel of Lord chase them. Okay, he goes on and on, but basically he's saying, God, would you strike, would you smite, to use a good old King James word, would you strike and smite my enemies? Now, I would say that it is perfectly proper to pray Psalm, 1, Psalm 35 and the spirit of Psalm 35, considering two things. Okay, number one, considering this. The New Testament tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against uh, powers of darkness in high places. We wrestle against demonic spirits and unclean spirits that would seek to distract and divert and destroy us if they could. Now, you can pray this regarding... Um, the spiritual warfare that you face and say, Lord, every spiritual enemy comes against me. Would you please destroy them? Would you please strike them and sweep them away? So understanding that our true battle is not against flesh and blood, we can pray this prayer. That's number one. But number two, I want you to understand this. What David did when he prayed this way was he poured out his heart before God and he left the fate of his enemies in God's hands by prayer. He didn't take it into his own hands. He said, Lord, I pray that you would get them because I know that you are a just and righteous judge. 
and I'll leave it in your hands. That is a godly attitude. If you have an enemy, if you have somebody who's attacking you or against you, it is entirely appropriate for you to pray and in your prayers to leave them to God's will and God's discretion. That's an entirely fine thing to do. So don't be shy about doing it. Lord, to whatever extent this person needs to be defeated, would you defeat them? Would you get them? So the heart of saying, I will not take up violence against my enemy. And again, he's talking about spiritual things here. I will not take up violence against them. Lord, any such thing, you'll have to do it because I won't do it. That is an entirely fine thing to do to commit these things to the Lord in prayer, refusing to take them into our own hands. Now, there's much more that could be said about that. It's sort of an incomplete answer, but I hope that gives you enough to go on. And I hope you've enjoyed our time today uh, talking about the Bible and questions that you might have. Let me say once again, thank you to our TWR360 audience. Thank you to all of those who pray for the ongoing work of Enduring Word, especially the work we have of translating our commentary, uh, my commentary, if I could put it in those terms, into many different languages where the need for good Bible resources is even greater. I appreciate your prayers. I appreciate those who support the work of Enduring Word. Thank you for doing that. You don't have to. But God is gracious uh, to provide through the generous gifts that people give. So I just want to say thank you. And um, I'm planning on joining you next Thursday as well. But let me tell you something a little unusual for next Thursday's live question and answer. I'm not going to say what it is. We'll leave it for next next Thursday until we reveal it. Until then, let me just say thank you. God bless you. And we'll see you again next Thursday, God willing, and if we live. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.